0: you have to find a reliable a verified a guaranteed source of income sustainable that's going to make these programs work
1: enchanted sky media
0: Media. Media.
1: this is code three the firefighters podcast
0: Now, here's your host, Scott Orr.
1: That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. We've discussed community paramedicine programs on this show in the past, and in fact, one episode was just a couple of weeks ago. These programs hold the potential to take a load of work off firefighters and at the same time offer better treatment to patients. But there's a problem. Apparently, nobody wants to pay for these programs. This spring, one of the better-known programs in the U.S. shut down. May say Arizona Fire and Medical had funded their program through a grant which wasn't renewed. Fire Chief Mary Kamelli knew this could happen and she said so on this show last year. If
0: we do not get additional funding, um then we're gonna have to some of these programs are gonna be dramatically reduced. We have till February of eighteen, depending on the funding we receive for that. Uh, will depend on how many or if we can continue these services.
1: But Mesa Fire was unable to get the money it needed from insurers, hospitals, or anywhere else, and the community paramedicine program was shut down. So how does this get funded? My guest today to talk about paying for community paramedicine programs is Chief Gary Ludwig. He's a 40-year veteran of the fire service, and he's currently chief of the Champaign, Illinois, Fire Department. And Gary joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3, Chief.
0: Oh, it's an honor to be with you today.
1: Thank you. So have we established that grant funds are not the way to do this?
0: Well, I I would say that grant funding sometimes is the kickoff to it, but, you know, grant funding is not an ever-ending ever source of income. So it, it is unsustaining. Grant funding only goes so far as we have found out, as Mesa found out, as other communities have found out. And so you have to find a reliable, a, a verified, a guaranteed source of income sustainable that's going to make these programs work. And taking taking that type of money out of your operating budget is not always the answer.
1: When I first talked to Mary Camelli, she spoke about efforts to get hospitals to help, insurers to help, because there was evidence that patient outcomes were improved. But it seems like nobody wants to pay for these programs.
0: That's That's the ever-ending question because those individuals, those organizations, you know, they have to find the money also. And they have to see a cost benefit before they'll try to fund something like that. I think programs like Mesa and other excellent programs out there have verified and validated, you know, a deliver delivery alternative method. And so they need to step forward, like a lot of other communities have. A lot of other communities have found the funding sources from other third party payers, including insurance companies and uh, you know, MCOS, ACOs, those sort of things. Those. Those types of organizations have all stepped forward, hospitals have all stepped forward and provided funding for these programs. Some of these programs are self-sustainable through that type of funding. So um, the uh, the challenge is, again, to, to be able to make the decision makers, to commit to the funding sources, and that's that's the challenge for us in fire departments.
1: Now, help me out here. Where is the expense? I mean, if you have people on the payroll, do you need more to do this job? Is that the major expense?
0: Yes, we should never rob Peter to the paypal. You shouldn't shut down engine companies. You shouldn't shut down ambulances to staff these types of programs. It is best, you know, if we keep our existing response force in place, and then hire additional people to run these types of programs and be the care providers in these types of programs. Now I know that might not be necessarily the answer right off the bat. You might have to dedicate a few people to the program during the pilot phase to see if it works or not, but if, but if you're able to validate that it is a sustainable program, that it's cost effective, it's operationally effective, there's efficacy there, then there's no reason why you shouldn't hire additional people through that funding source to uh, sustain and operate these types of alternative delivery care methods.
1: You know, we've talked several times about the fact that these programs are more efficient from the point of view of the fire department, but how efficient are they in terms of patient care? Has anybody looked into that yet?
0: I know there are various programs around the country that have demonstrated the efficacy of that. You know, for instance, the the hospitals will get dinged if you get readmitted back to the hospital with the same diagnosis within 30 days. So it's in the best interest of in the hospitals to make sure that these patients aren't readmitted. For instance, if someone has been discharged from the hospital who had congestive heart failure and they reappear back at the hospital within 30 days, uh, with a, again, with a diagnosis of CHF, then the hospital is probably going to get dinged for that and not get reimbursed for that second visit or maybe even the first visit. So that's where we, in partnership with the hospitals and the insurance companies, can all work collaboratively together in order to make sure that person is not readmitted back to the hospital. I saw, uh, Scott, I saw an interesting statistic yesterday, which I just was blown away by. Uh, I saw various statistics on this, but uh, that 75% of adults are noncompliant with the medications that they've been prescribed. Another website said it was 50%. So, you can imagine that someone's been discharged from the hospital with a diagnosis of c h f and they're discharged home and they're on some type of diuretic and they're not taking their diuretic if you know if fifty to seventy five percent of the people who have been prescribed medications are non compliant there's a chance they could be readmitted back to the hospital. That's where the fire departments with additional staffing can come into play. And they can go and visit those people in those homes and make sure they're not gaining weight. If they're gaining weight, we know they're putting some water weight back on. We can make sure they're complying with their medications. We can help them in a variety of different ways so they're not readmitted back to the hospital. Adding cost to the insurance companies, and adding cost to the hospitals. It can be very cost effective with just that small pair, that small component of the healthcare delivery of treating CHF patients who have been released from the hospital.
1: I'll be back with more right after this. On any given day, you are tasked to be your best and power through the worst of
0: times, all at a moment's notice. We know the sacrifices you make each and every day. Your success relies on superior equipment and the best training available. That's why Federal Resources is here to support you, the everyday hero. We are here so you can excel. Discover your success at FederalResources.com.
1: You know it strikes me, and tell me if this is too simplistic, that maybe the case is that these health care providers need to be educated as to why community paramedicine helps them. Then again, the more I think about that, the more I realize that once again, we're looking at a limited pool of money. So I guess the question is, what can we do to pry the money out of these people to get them to pay for these programs that help them?
0: What I recommend always to everyone is when you approach these providers, and let me even back up a little bit here. I'm going to stress this. I see all kinds of fire departments saying, hey, hey I need to get in on the trend. I need to follow the rest of the group. Um, and also get into these alternative delivery care models of community paramedicine and other types of delivery, they don't start with the why. We always start with how are we going to do it, what are we going to do, and how are we going to do it. But they don't start with the why, and there's a good book out there, Start With The Why. So why are we doing it? So you need to start with that. And then how are we going to fund it? So you know they, there's this rapid response, and we've got to do this we've got to get into the we've got to start treating patients, releasing them we've got to have somebody in a van that goes out and handles the low acuity low you know, low priority patients and so as a result of that because we've got to get the stress off the systems, but they're not asking all the other questions about why are we doing what we're doing, how can we do it more effectively, and how are we going to fund that so so Using that as a foundation, what I just said, Scott, one of the things you need to do is you need to take that entire package, just like if you're making a business proposal, and go talk to your healthcare providers. Hopefully, you have a relationship with them before you're even sitting sitting down with them. Hopefully, you're meeting once a month as a consortium in your community and talking about healthcare delivery, pre-hospital care delivery, that you're sharing sharing information and exchanging information. If you're not doing that, you're missing the ball. Once you have that in place, Again, one of the things that I have always advocated for is at least say let's try this as a pilot. Even though I know you don't want to pay for it, even though I know you I don't want you I it's gonna be difficult for me to pry the money away from you. Let's try this as a pilot. Let's look at the data after it's all said and done, and let's see how efficient and how effective we are and let's look at the downstream cost of what I was able to save your insurance company or what I was able to save your hospital in respect to how we are able to deliver care in an alternative fashion.
1: Let's look back for a little perspective. Back in the good old days when paramedicine itself was just being developed, how did we integrate it into fire departments at that point? Well,
0: it's interesting that you say that because uh, I liken this to exactly what happened 40 years ago when the word paramedic came out. You know, there was this this push to have these these firefighters who were trained, to deliver this, uh, these higher levels of care, but there was no standard curriculum. There was no standard methodology. There was no uh, standard of scope of practice or care, so to speak. So you had these various systems around the country, in Seattle, Miami, and Los Angeles, and Columbus, Ohio, where you had physicians kind of setting their own agenda and setting their own education and curriculum standards for what a paramedic should, should be and so that's we're almost coming full circle or we're almost repeating history to where we're at here some 40 years later with community paramedics and that is what is the scope of practice what is their role what is the standard and we don't we don't see that right now because different communities are doing different things in different ways now i know uh, the nfpa the national fire protection association is looking at, or if they have not already formed a technical committee on paramedicine, I think it might be the 451 NFPA 451 committee. I'm I, I'm going to have to look that up while I'm talking to you. Um, that will deal with trying to set some standards and trying to set some guidelines for what a community paramedicine programs should look like. So, to answer your question, you know how how we came out with this in. And, um, you know, the fire departments in the past was like we did 40 years ago. It, it was a potpourri approach. And uh, we're moving towards, as anything is evolutionary-wise, we're moving towards an approach, we're going to standardize this. standardize this. And Yes, while I was um, speaking with you, Scott, uh, NFPA guide 451, NFPA 451, is a guide for community health care programs. So, I don't know where the status of that is. I think it's out for public input. I see something as of January 10th, 2018, the guide has been released for public input on a preliminary draft, and so that works, that technical committee, there's a process, a consensus standard body there. They'll work through that process, and eventually, if they have not already, I don't think they have uh, released what is the NFPA 451 document, which is a guide for community health care programs.
1: It sounds as though you're confident that down the road we're going to nail down all these funding issues and that community paramedicine or mobile integrated health care or whatever we're going to call it will ultimately become a fairly common thing once we figure out all the logistics.
0: I, I like to think I'm optimistic that eventually we'll figure this all out, but we got to get Medicare and Medicaid on board with this too. This is just not the private insurance companies and hospitals. You know we got to get Medicare and Medicaid you know Medicare cannot get out of the box where they think the only way we can deliver care through EMS is to take someone to in an ambulance uh, to an emergency room that's the only way they really reimburse uh, EMS and hospital systems and if you think about this this archaic methodology of this 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 old methodology of everybody who calls 911, we put them in the ambulance and we take them to the hospital. You know, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And that, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, they need to get out of this archaic thinking and think that's the only way you can reimburse systems. And we have tried, we've tried on the national level to get them to start thinking outside the box, but that's they, just. It is, uh, it's like pulling teeth when you're dealing with the federal government at that level.
1: It always is. All right, Chief Gary Ludwig, thanks for your insights, and thanks for being on Code 3 today.
0: It's been an honor again. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: And we've put some more information on paying for community paramedicine and about Chief Ludwig on our website at code3podcast.com slash alternative. Check it out. Now, here comes your trivia question. The two types of ventilation methods performed in conjunction with either vertical or horizontal ventilation are blank and blank. The answer, right after this.
0: Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan.
1: Here's the trivia answer. The two types of ventilation methods performed in conjunction with either vertical or horizontal ventilation are mechanical and natural. That was pretty obvious. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later.
0: Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.